kick it off. Praise the Lord. And everybody say, God bless Brother Tim Williams. God bless you all. We are in John chapter 15. Don't you all love the book of John? Yeah. I do too. I mean, we, we all love all the Bible, but right now we've got to love John the most because that's what we're studying on. I'm going to be covering John chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, if you want to follow along with me. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. That means somebody that takes care of the vine. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye may bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue, continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things which I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's a commandment. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You're, ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Verse 15 says, henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye knew that it hated me before it hated you. This is the seventh and last I am statement of Christ recorded in the Gospel of John. However, Jesus did not stop with his image, but went on to it in John 14 and 15, and he uses the picture of friend. And these two, these two pictures of the believer, branches and friends, reveal both our privileges and our responsibilities. As branches... We have the privilege of sharing his life and the responsibility of abiding. As friends, we have the privilege of knowing his will and the responsibility of obeying that goes with that. As branches, we must abide. And the cultivation of vineyards was important to the life <coughs> and economy of Israel. There was a golden vine that adorned Herod's temple, for example, a nice, exquisite ornament. <coughs> and when our Lord used this image of the vine, he wasn't introducing anything new. It was familiar to every Jew, because 
most Jews that grew up in Israel at that time did some type of work on vines. And there's four elements in this allegory that we must understand to benefit from his teaching. Now, there are actually three different vines found in Scripture. The past vine was the nation of Israel. And you'll find that in, in the book of Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea talks about it as well. And an act of wonderful grace, God transplanted Israel into Canaan and gave the nation every possible benefit. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it, God asked in Isaiah 5 and 4. If ever a nation had everything it needed to succeed, it was Israel. <clears throat> but that vine produced wild grapes. Instead of produ uh, producing justice, it practiced oppression. And instead of producing righteousness, it produced unrighteousness in, in the Old Testament many times and cries of distress from the victims. God had to deal with the nation of Israel and chasten it. But even that did not produce lasting results. When God's own son came into the vineyard, they cast him out and killed him. You'll notice that parable in Matthew 21. There's also a future vine, the vine of the earth. And that's described in Revelations 14, 14 through 20. And this is the Gentile, this is the Gentile world system ripening for God's judgment. Believers are branches in the vine of heaven, but the unsaved are branches in the vine of the earth. And the unsaved depend on this world for their sustenance and satisfaction, while believers depend on Jesus Christ. And the vine of the earth will be cut down and destroyed when Jesus Christ does return someday. The present vine is our Lord Jesus Christ, and of course the vine includes the branches. He is the true vine. That is the original of which all the other vines are just a copy. And as Christians, we do not live on substitutes. And the symbolism of the vine and branches is similar to that of the head and the body. We have a living relationship with Christ and belong to him. And the vines that you see in the Holy Land, if you ever go over there, they're, they're large and strong. And it was next to impossible for anybody to break off a mature branch without injuring the vine itself. And our union with Christ is a living union, so, so we may, may bear fruit. It's a loving union, so we might enjoy him, and a lasting union, so that we need to not be afraid. The branches, of course, they of themselves, by itself, is weak and useless. It's good for either bearing or burning, as he spoke about, but not for building. A branch cannot produce its own life. It must draw that life from the vine. And it's our communion with Christ through the Spirit that makes possible the bearing of fruit and leaves and other nice things you see on vines. Many of the images of Christ and the believer given in Scripture emphasize this important concept of union and communion. And as an example, the body and its members is talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. Or the bride and the bridegroom, as spoke about in Ephesians 5. The sheep and the shepherd, as talked about in John 10. A member of the body cut off from the body would die. A part of your body. If your finger was cut off, it would die. The marriage creates the union, but it takes daily love and devotion to maintain communion. 
The shepherd brings the sheep into the flock, but the sheep must follow the shepherd in order to have protection and provision. The sooner we as believers discover that we are but branches, the better we will relate to the Lord for we will know our own weaknesses and confess our needs for him. The key word that we went over a lot in this past chapter is abide. It's used 11 times in John 15, 1 through 11. What does it mean to abide? It means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life can work in and through us to produce fruit. And that certainly involves the word of God and the confession of sin so that nothing hinders our communion with him. And it also involves obeying him because we love him. And how can we tell if when we're abiding in Christ, is there a special feeling? Not so much, but there are special evidences that appear and they are unmistakably clear. For one thing, when you're abiding in Christ, you produce fruit. As John 15 and 2 says, and what that fruit is, will be discussed later on. And also, you, you'll experience the Father's pruning so that you will bear more fruit. And the believer who is abiding in Christ has his prayers answered and experiences a deepening love for Christ and for other believers. He also had, experiences joy. This abiding relationship is natural to the branch and the vine, but it must be cultivated in Christian life. It's not automatic. Abiding in Christ demands worship, meditation on God's word, prayer, sacrifice, and service. But if you do all those things, it's actually very joyful. It might be a drudgery at first, but when you're really abiding in Christ, it is joyful. And once you have begun to cultivate this deeper communion, the vine will not be so dissipated that the quality of the crop will be jeopardized. In fact, the vine dresser will even cut away whole branches of grapes, as an example, so that the rest of the crop will be of higher quality. Because God wants both quantity and quality. The pruning process is the most important process of the whole enterprise, and the people who do it must be carefully trained, because if they're not, they can destroy an entire crop. And some vineyards invest two or three years in training the pruners so that they know where to cut, how much to cut, and even at what angle to make a cut. I never knew that there was that much to uh, dressing vineyards myself. The greatest judgment God could bring to a believer would be to let him alone, let him have his own way. Because God loves us, he prunes us and encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. If the branches could speak, they would confess that the pruning process hurts. Any of you know that by example? But they would also rejoice that they will be able to produce more and better fruit. Your heavenly Father is never nearer to you than when he's pruning you. It's if you're being pruned, it don't feel good, but it should let you know your heavenly Father is close to you. Sometimes he cuts away the dead wood that might cause trouble, but often he cuts off the living tissue that is robbing you of spiritual vigor. Pruning does not simply mean spiritual surgery that removes what is bad. It can also mean cutting away the good and the better so that we might enjoy the best. And pruning hurts, but it also helps. We might not enjoy it, but we do need it. 
How does the Father prune us? Sometimes He uses a word to convict and cleanse us. The word translated purge in John 15 and 2 is the same as clean in John 13 and 18. And then sometimes he must chasten us. At, at the time, it hurts when he removes something precious from us. But as the spiritual crop is produced, we see that the Father knew what he was doing. The more we abide in Christ, the more fruit we bear. And the more fruit we bear, the more the Father has to prune us so that the quality keeps up with the quantity. And left to itself, the branch might produce many clusters, but they will be inferior in quality. And God is glorified by a bigger crop that's also a better crop. Now, talking about the fruit, the word, re- the word results is often heard in conversation among Christ- Christian workers. But this is not actually a Bible concept. Because a machine can produce results, and so can a robot. But it takes a living organism to produce fruit. No machine, robot, as great as they may be, can produce fruit. It takes time and cultivation to produce fruit. A good crop does not come overnight. And we must remember that the branches do not eat the fruit. Others do. We're not producing fruit to please ourselves, but to serve others. And we should be the kind of people who feed others by our words and our works. And the lips of the righteous feed many, is found in Proverbs 10 and 21. Several different types of spiritual fruit are named in the Bible. We bear fruit when we win others to Christ. That's obvious. We are part of the harvest, as found in John 4 and 35. As we grow in holiness and obedience, we're bearing fruit, as said in Romans 6 and 22. Paul considered Christian giving to be a fruit from a dedicated life. I can agree with that. The fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5 and 22, we've heard that many times, is a kind of Christian character that glorifies God and makes Christ real to others. And even our good works, our service, grow out of our abiding life. The praise that comes from our hearts and lips is actually fruit to the glory of God. That's found in Hebrews 13 and 15. And many of these things can be counterfeited by the flesh, but the deception would eventually be detected. For real spiritual fruit has in it the seeds of more fruit. And man-made results are dead and cannot reproduce themselves. But spirit-produced fruit will go on reproducing from one life to another. There will be fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. A true branch united with the vine will always bear fruit. Not every branch bears a bumper crop, just as not every field has a bumper harvest. But there is always fruit where there's life. If there's no fruit, the branch is worthless, and it is cast away and burned. And I don't believe our Lord is teaching here that true believers can lose their salvation, because this would kind of convict what he says in John 6. And it's not always wise to build a theological doctrine on a parable or an allegory. But Jesus was teaching one main truth, and that the fruitful life of the believer, and we must not press the details all that much. Just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful believer is also useless. And both both must be dealt with. It's a tragic thing for a once fruitful believer to backslide and lose his privilege of fellowship and service. Excuse me. 
If anything, John 15 and 6 describes divine dis discipline rather than eternal destiny. There is for believers a sin unto death, as talked about in John, in First John, one of the one of the epistles. And our Lord had spoken about peace. Now He mentions love and joy in John, fifteen and eleven. <coughs> love, joy, and peace are the first three fruits of the Spirit named in Galatians. And our abiding in Christ certainly ought to produce those things. <laughs> And because we love him, we keep his commandments. And as we keep his commandments, we abide in his love and experience it in a deeper way. Several times in John's gospel, you will find Jesus speaking about the Father's love for him. We so emphasize God's love for the world and the church that we forget that the Father loves the Son, too. And because the Father does love the Son, he has put all things into the Son's hands and has revealed all things to the Son. The Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And He loved the Son when He died on the cross. And the amazing thing is believers today can now experience that same love. Jesus prayed that the love with which Thou hast loved me may be in them. And as branches in the vine, we have the privilege of abiding and the responsibility of bearing fruit. Now we turn to the picture of friends where Jesus was talking about friends. Most of us have many acquaintances, but very few friends. And even some of our friends may prove unfriendly or unfaithful. And like, like, what about Judas? And, of course, we know Jesus did refer to him as a friend, too. Yes, my own familiar friend in whom I have trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath, has lifted up his heel against me. That's found in Psalm 41 and 9. David, I believe, was, was speaking prophetically. And even a devoted friend may fail us when we need them most. Peter, James, and John went to sleep in the garden when they should have been praying. And Peter even denied the Lord three times. Our friendship to each other and to the Lord is not perfect. But his friendship to us is definitely perfect. And we must not interpret this word friend in a limited way. Because the Greek word means a friend at court. If you're studying Greek. It describes that inner circle around a king or an emperor. In John 3 and 29, it refers to the best man at a wedding. The friends of the king would be close to him and know his secrets, but they would also be subject to him and have to obey his commands. And there is thus no conflict between being a friend and being a servant, because we're both servants and friends. The perfect illustration of this in Scripture is Abraham. The friend of God. That's mentioned three times in, in Scripture. Who was also the servant of God. In Genesis 18, our Lord and two angels came to visit Abraham as they were on their way to investigate the sin in Sodom. And the, even though Abraham was nearly 100 years old, he interrupted this noon, his noonday rest, greeted the visitors, saw to their comfort, and fed them a lovely meal. All of a hundred years old. I don't think I'll be living when I'm a hundred years old. <laughs> if I am, I don't think I'll be doing any any what Abraham did. But in the first 15 verses of this chapter, Abraham is on the move, and twice he refers to himself as a servant. Note that this old man hastened and ran and encouraged others to perform their work quickly. 
That's a perfect example of a servant. And Abraham, he didn't, he didn't sit and eat with them. Like a true servant, he stood nearby, ready to do their bidding. And in the last half of the chapter, the atmosphere changes. And Abraham is quietly standing still, communing with the Lord. He is still a servant, but now he is being a friend. Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do, the Lord asked? As a friend of God, Abraham shared God's secrets. And it's this kind of relationship that Jesus described when he called his disciples friends. It was certainly a relationship of love, both for him and for each other. The friends of the king could not compete with each other for attention or promotion. They were part of the inner circle, not to promote themselves, but to serve their king. And what a rebuke this must have been to the selfish disciples who often argued over who was the greatest, who would sit on the right hand or left, and how, how is it possible for Jesus to command us to love one another? Can true love be commanded? You must keep in mind that Christian love is not basically a feeling, it's an act of the will. The proof of our love is not in our feelings, but in our actions. We know that all, even in this life, even to the extent of laying down our, our lives for Christ and for one another. Jesus laid down his life both for, for his friends and for his enemies. While the emotions are certainly inv involved, real Christian love is an act of the will. It means treating others the way God treats us. So our friendship with Christ involves love and obedience, but it also involves knowledge. He lets us in on his plans. He is our master, but he does not treat us as servants. He treats us as friends, even though we are servants too. If we do what he commands, he definitely treats us as friends. Abraham was God's friend because he obeyed God. If we have friendship with the world, then as James says, we experience enmity with God. Lot in Sodom was not called God's friend, even though Lot was a saved man. God told Abraham what he planned to do to the cities of the plain, and Abraham was, of course, able to intercede for Lot and his family. And it's interesting to note that in John's gospel, it was the servants who knew what was going on. The servants at the wedding feast in Cana knew where the wine came from. And the nobleman's servants knew when the son was healed. One of the greatest privileges we have as friends is that of learning to know God better and getting in, getting in on his secrets. We are his friends and we ought to be near the throne, listening to his word, enjoying his intimacy, and obeying his commandments. One day while he was a fugitive, David was near Bethlehem, his home city, and he longed for a drink of water from the well by the gate. Three of his mighty men were close enough to David to hear his sigh, and they risked their lives to bring their king the water that he wanted. This is what it means to be a friend of the king. In John 14 and 16, Jesus reminded the men that they had this privileged position only because of his grace. They didn't choose him. He chose them. He chose them out of this world and ordained them to do his will. Again, we find this important word fruit. As branches, we share his life and bear fruit. And as friends, we share his love and bear fruit. As branches, we are pruned by the Father. As friends, we're instructed by the Son, and His Word controls our life. The word ordained simply means appointed. 
It refers to the act of setting someone apart for special service. That's why many ministers have the title of ordained. We have graciously been chosen and set apart by the Lord in order to go into the world and bear fruit. He has sent us into this world as his personal ambassadors to tell others about the king and his great salvation. When we witness to others and win them to Christ, this is bringing forth fruit to the glory of God. And as I mentioned before, the evidence of true sonship and discipleship and friendship is fruit. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Where there is true fruit, it remains where there is true fruit, it remains man-made results as we would know them eventually go away. Fruit has it in it, the seed for more fruit. So the process continues to go on perpetually. Whatever is born of the Spirit of God has the mark of eternity on it, and it will last. And once again, Jesus brought up the privilege of prayer. The friends of the king certainly speak to their sovereign and share the burdens and their needs with him. In the days of monarchies, it was considered a very special honor to be invited to speak to the king or queen, yet the friends of Jesus Christ can speak to him at any time. You know, we, we would probably think it would be nice to go and speak to the president or Queen Elizabeth, but, I mean, we get to speak with Jesus every day. Yeah. The throne of grace is always available to them, too. John 15, 15 and 16, it summarizes for us what it means to be a friend of the king, of kings. It's a humbling experience, for he chose us and we did not choose him. And we must keep this in mind lest we become proud and presumptuous or even unappreciative. It means that we keep our ears open and listen to what he says to us. Hast thou heard the secret of God, as Job said in Job 15 and 18? The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. That's found in Psalm 25 and 14. And we must be attentive and alert, because the purpose of us all is that we might obey him and get his work done. The king has tasks that must be performed, and if we love him, we will obey all his commands. We will seek to bear fruit that will please him and glorify the Father. Our joy should be to please him. Jesus closed this part of his message by reminding them and us of the most important commandment of all, and that's to love one another. Even though we should do it automatically, he commands us to do that. There are dozens of one another statements in the New Testament, but all of them are sub summarized in love one another. Jesus had already given this commandment to the 11 in John 13, 34, and 35, and, and now he, he repeated it again in John 15. It will be stated in one way or another many more times in the New Testament letters, especially by John in his first epistle. The friends of the king must not only love him, but they also got to love one another, too. Right. Sometimes that's not easy to do, is it? What joy it brings to his heart when he sees his friends loving one another and working together to obey his commands. The study began in the vineyard, and it ended in the throne room. The next study will take us to the battlefield where we experience the hatred of the lost world. If we're not abiding as branches and obeying as friends, we will never be able to face the opposition 
of the world. If we don't love one another, how can we ever hope to love lost men and women in this world? If we're not marching together as friends of the king, we will never present a united front to the enemy. John 15 and 5 says, without me, ye can do nothing. We're not simply handicapped or hindered. We are hopelessly paralyzed without him. We can do nothing. But if we abide in him and stay close to the throne, we can do anything that he commands us to do. And what, what a privilege and responsibility that is. Praise the Lord. Great job. Great job as always. Praise God. A lot of great stuff in there, and he pulls it out, doesn't he? Praise God. You know, when he was talking about I am the vine and you are the branches, uh, on our property we have two peach trees. And uh, last year uh, we had so many peaches on those peach trees that the limbs were getting ready to break. I had to go to the, uh, to the garage, um, and I had to get two-befores, and I had to prop up all the limbs. Now, think about that. Um, if I would have not propped them limbs up, then them limbs would have broke. In other words, that peach tree was not smart enough to get itself into a situation where it would self-destruct itself. On top of that, that peach tree had so many peaches that before those peaches could fully mature, they began to rot because the peach tree could not provide enough nourishment to continue to do that. So here is a peach tree that if it was left all by itself without somebody like me to try to help it, would self-destruct itself. So when you think about that, you think about, uh, you know, our lives. He said, I am, you are the vine and I am, uh, I am the husbandman that takes care of the vine and the branches. And we, if we were left to ourselves, we would self-destruct ourselves. Praise the Lord. And so this year, I uh, got on YouTube. I don't know if you all know about YouTube, but I love YouTube. Everything, I YouTube everything. Because everything from how to play the bass to how to be married, I'll YouTube it. No, I'm just kidding. But you YouTube it. And I YouTube peach trees and found out that there's a, 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 a branches on there. It's called redwood branch. And you cut all them off. They're generally branches that go straight up. And then you trim the tree back. And I trimmed the tree back, both trees back this year. And I trimmed probably at least almost half, if not a third, of the branches to where it was back in. Then what you do is you gut the middle of the tree so that uh, the tree, it's called open face tree. And the reason I guess you do that is, and that is because the sun, if, if you don't, what happens is all the leaves will not allow the sun to come into the tree and then mold will grow on the tree and kill your tree. So you open the middle of the tree up to where the only thing is is the branches on the outside, and you open the middle up so that the sun can come in and uh, dry out all that mold that would grow on your tree. And I've got, I had a tremendous amount of mold on my tree, and I'm like, okay, i got to take care. But the point of the matter is it took someone with knowledge to be able to do that. And it takes someone with knowledge like God 
to be able to do things like that in our lives. Because left to our own devices, we would, we would destruct, self-destruct. If you'll stand with me today, Brother Tim Williams wrote down to 18. I'm going to read verse 18 through 21, then talk to you for a little bit. John chapter 15 and verse 18 said, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember that the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If thou have persecuted me, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, I will keep, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that hath sent me. Lord, bless this in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Now, Tim taught to you the first 18 verses of John chapter 15. And Jesus talked to them about love, but there's a transmission here. He's going into something different. He's talking to them about how that they're going to be hated. Praise God. What Jesus is telling us here is, he's saying, don't expect to be accepted. Now, the church world today as a whole wants to be accepted. They want to be accepted. So they'll do things in their services to even try to accept, get other people to accept them. Praise the Lord. They'll even go as far as to try to make the church building or whatever look more commercial so people will feel more at ease and at comfort and everything. Or instead of having church service, let's, uh, let's have plays or let's do all these things so that People will accept us more. Jesus says they're not, people are not all going to accept you. you. There's going to be a rejection. What Jesus is telling us is he said that you're going to be, expect them not to accept you. Jesus told them in Matthew 5 and 10, he said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Praise the Lord. There's going to be persecution. Now, you know, it's not that I walk up to somebody's door, knock on the door, they come to the door, and I say, praise God, if you don't get saved, you're going to hell. Do you realize that? You are going to hell. And they shut the door, and I turn around and say, well, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> praise the Lord. I, you know, you know, I'm, you know, you know, I, I, I'm nasty at work, and they're nasty back to me. And I, bless God, I'm persecuted. Let me sh- knock the dust off my sandals and move on here. He doesn't mean when we're being persecuted for something that we need to be persecuted about. But he's talking about so, be, being persecuted for his namesake. Praise God. You know, there's some people that just don't like me in this world because somehow I rubbed them raw. I said something I shouldn't have said. Praise the Lord. I I addressed them in a way they didn't like to be addressed. And that's not a spiritual thing. But there's also the spiritual side. And 
when we are persecuted or when we are not liked, praise the Lord, that is not something that we ought to go, oh man, I don't understand this. You see, we just don't do things the same way the world does things. This world is not our home. Now, I've got friends. We talk and we do a lot of things together in this world. But there are times whenever, you know, like when one manager said to me, give me your phone. What do you want my phone for? I want to rate my store. I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you my phone so you can rate your store. And then all of a sudden, she didn't like me for the longest time. Well, you know, the Bible said you're not going to, you know, have that. So throughout the whole Gospel of John, it is evident that the religious establishment, praise God, opposed Jesus. Matter of fact, they sought to even kill him. And so we look at this word hate. When you look at that word hate, it doesn't really mean totally hate like you want to kill, although it can get that way. But it means love less. In other words, when you are working with people in this world, they're going to love everybody that lies like they lie. They're going to love everybody that steals like they steal. They're going to love everybody that commits adultery like they commit adultery. But when it comes to you not doing that, and, and you really most of the time don't have to go to them and say, hey, you're doing something wrong. They just know you feel like you're doing something wrong. I don't want to be a part of that. They're going to love you less. Jesus says, get ready for it because it's going to happen. Once again, the first part of chapter 15, he talked about love, 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 love. And now he turns to the word hate. And he says, you're going to be loved of God, but you're going to be hated in this world. But he said there are reasons why you're going to be hated. He gave us at least three. So why does the world system, including this world, hate the Christians? Praise God. Or them that believe or follow him. Jesus gives us some reasons. First of all, he said, we are identified with Christ. 15, 18, and 20. 15, chapter 15, verse 18, and verse 20. He said, you're identified with Christ. You're known as Christ. If I would go over into uh, um, Russia today... Guess what? And I would stand on the street and say, I'm an American. I would be hated. Why? Praise God. If I was, when you was in Afghanistan and you was an American, Brother Tim, you probably couldn't go out and walk down the streets a lot. Praise God. Because that is an American and I hate him. Why? Because he's an American. You are represented as, and it's the same thing Jesus said. He said, you are Christ-like. You know, they, they said, they called them Christians because they were making fun of them. They're Christ-like. They're Christians. They're Christ-like. And the Christians are like, yeah, we like that. We are proud to be Christians. Praise the Lord. And so the first thing is, we're identified with Christ and if they've hated him, they're also going to hate us, he tells us, because we're identified with him. Jesus quoted the statement that he made earlier in John 13 and 16. He, and the logic is very clear. He also said, 
He is the master and we are the servants. So since he is the master and we are the servants, they're not going to like us because they don't like Christ. And let me just say this, praise the Lord. From the very beginning of time, there is a war that's going on in heaven. There is Satan and he hates God. And we are living in this world and it is his world And all down through the ages of time, Satan has worked with people to hate the things of God. And so Satan works with them and he puts things in their hearts and in their minds so that they'll hate you or love you less. I believe we ought to do our best to get along in this world. I have friends. I work with them. I do the things I need to do. They know not to ask me for my phone because I'm not going to give it to them to lie about. Praise God. But on the other hand, he meant I don't get up in their face and irritate them by telling them they're going to hell. (laughs) Praise the Lord. They don't see me as somebody that thinks I'm better than them. Praise the Lord. And so there is that relationship. There may come a day when the devil gets really strong, that he's going to turn on the Christians. And there will be martyrism, like there's been in the past. Praise God. But Jesus said, one of the reasons is that, is that, amen, I, I, you're identified as Christ. Number two, we do not belong to the world. This world is not our home. So we're not going to feel at home here. To be sure, we are... Of We are in the world physically, but we are not in the world spiritually. This world is not our home. Because we are not of this world, we are not influenced by the way the world lives and its principles. I don't live according to the principles of this world. And sometimes that can irritate others, aggravate others. Praise God. This does not mean that we are isolated, or that we are not living in reality from this world's needs. I go out, I work, I do my jobs, I take care of, I talk, I love people, I enjoy talking to them, I have a good relationship with them. Praise the Lord, I will talk about anything in the world they want to talk about. If they're hungry for God, then I open it up and talk to them about God. But I'm not the kind of person that constantly, uh, uh, you know, hammers everything's got to be about God. Everything's got to be about God. Everything's got to be about God. Praise the Lord. When they're hungry, I'll open up and I'll tell them about God. I had a friend one time years ago that got in the truck to work with me. And he's, he was hammered on and hammered on and hammered on. He said, I want to tell you something. I know you're a preacher. He said, but I don't want to talk about God. I said, we don't have to talk about God. About a month later, we started talking about God, and about two months later, I baptized him in Jesus' name. Praise God. So he he didn't want to talk about God. Well, that's fine. I'm not going to shove that down your throat. But there came a time when he got hungry for the things of God, and I was able to help him with it. Third of all, the world does not understand spiritual things. They do not understand the things of God. They don't understand why we go to church. They don't understand why we love God. 
Praise God. You know, they, they look at you and they say, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm just doing great. I am on the presence of the Lord. And they're like, no, you're on crack. They have no idea, seriously, why you feel like that. Why do you feel like that? Praise the Lord. You go to church. You love God. You go down and you listen to Bible studies and you, you go to service and you go to everything else. And why, why, why? I don't understand why you do all that. They don't understand. Their eyes are not opened to the things of God as your eyes were opened to the things of God. Praise God. And so they do not understand. John 16 and 3 says, and these things, Jesus says, and these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Praise God. They don't know them. John also told them in 8, uh, John 8, 19, he says, Ye never, you neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. So they don't know him. And then once again in John 8 and 55, and that's, uh, it says, yet ye have not known him, but I know him. So they don't know God. If they knew God, just think about your life before you came to God. How you thought, how you walked, how you talked. Think about that. Think about the way you thought before you came to God. And then all of a sudden, you came to a Pentecostal service or a church service and your eyes were open and you realized, I got to repent. I got to be baptized. I got to get the Holy Ghost. I got to do all these things. And then all of a sudden, hey man, your desires and your wants and your cares all changed. Praise the Lord. And so that's the way they do. You see, the world today doesn't know God because Satan has blinded their minds. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. The sin has blinded their hearts, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. They don't know God, amen, so they're not going to feel as comfortable with you as they should, amen, because they don't know God like you know God, amen. Let's read on, verse 22 through 24, and if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sinned. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hath hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not if I had not done among them the works which done other man did, they had not had sin. But now they both seen and hated both me and my father. You see. When he uses the word cloak, it is the word, you could word, use the word excuse. In other words, he said, they have no cloak, they have no excuse for their sin. The more you know about the things of God, the less of excuses you have not to do it. I've sat down with the Search for Truth Bible study, and I've told him from the very beginning, I said, I'm going to teach you some stuff within the next 12 weeks that you will be responsible at this point to live it. If you don't live it, you're going to be held accountable for it. Because there comes an accountability with what you know. 
Jesus says, amen. They are now held responsible because I told them. They saw my miracles. They've seen the word. Praise God. They've seen my actions. They have met me. So now they are going to be held responsible. You see, the people had no excuse for their sin. They had seen his works and heard his word. But they would not admit the truth that Jesus was God in flesh. All the evidence had been presented to them. But they did not accept him. And he says, now they're going to be judged. This shows us what has been taught in the scriptures in many places. Praise God. That our guilt will be in the uh, proportion to the light that has been given to us. In other words, amen, the more you know, the more guilty you are for not doing what you're going to do. You take a person that's raised in the church and knows the things of God and goes out and leaves the things of God knowing what they know is more guilty than a person that was raised in a house that had nothing to do with God. You see, because we're all going to be judged based upon what God has allowed us to learn and know and do. I've often said, there is no way being through Bible college, being raised in a Christian home, being in church, preaching, reading the Bible, doing everything that I could, there is no way in this world that I could ever reject what I know to be true. I just could not do it. I would be guilty than it probably anybody else in this place because of what I know. But here Jesus is telling us that what you know you're going to be held accountable for. So the more you know, the more you're going to be held accountable. You see, amen. You know, Jesus told them in Matthew 11 and 20, Praise God. I'm going to read this real fast. It said, Then beheld he and upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. He said, Woe unto thee, woe unto thee, for it be my, for the mighty works which were done in thee. Had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented along in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than the day of judgment than you. You see, God knew that if Tyre and Sidon would have had what Jesus did there, they would have repented and been saved. You see, the Lord is so smart he knows every scenario of your life. He knows what I would have done if I was not raised in a Christian home. He knows what I would have done if I was raised in a Christian home. He knows what I would have done if I wouldn't have married the person that I did. He knows what I would have done no matter what road I take. He already knows the outcome of that. He knew 
that if Tyra and Sidon would have had Jesus come to them like he did to the disciples and to the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have repented and been saved. He already knew the scenario. But he's saying here, amen, he's saying that they are going to be judged less on judgment day than you are because they did not have. Just think about it. We have the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We've got so much preaching. we got so much of the presence of the Lord. we got so much of God. God help us if we don't make it. Because you look at a man by the name of Job who did not understand why everything was ripped from him and why one messenger could not tell him how bad about his loss until another one kept saying, hurry up, i got to tell mine. And he still lived for the Lord. And you have us today who has the Bible, which is a perfect example of everything that God loves us for and everything God has done for us. And why, you know, you had people that died. David died not knowing how he was going to be saved. We can tell you exactly how you're going to be saved. And God help us if we don't get stay saved, be saved. The Bible says, amen, it would be better on Tyra and Sidon than it would be on you. Praise God. So God, amen, God judges according to the circumstances. You know, when I look at people that didn't live for the Lord or didn't make it like I'm making it, hopefully making it, well, I know I'm making it. If not, I'd get to that altar real fast. But when I look at people that didn't make it, I tell myself, hey, man, something, you know, I can't weigh my life with their life. I can't say, praise God, why I made it. Why didn't they make it? I don't know what would have happened to them if it would have happened to me that I wouldn't be making or living it today. Praise God. Because we all don't face the same things. We don't struggle. You know, on the way here tonight, I heard on the radio, and it said, would you rather be dumb and happy or smart and unhappy? And I said, I'd rather be smart and unhappy. No, I'd rather be dumb and happy. (laughs) But I said that to say this. We don't all have the same qualities And we don't all have the same disabilities. Praise God. We can't judge one another. We're all being judged on a different scale. Because we've all gone through different things. If I think of a man who was born in a country where there was no Christian that ever told them about God, and think, praise the Lord, that they're going to be judged the way I'm being judged, I am crazy. Praise God. God is going to hold His judgment in His own hands. And He's going to be righteous, and He's going to be just with the things that 
people have had to deal with and what they've had to go through. Jesus looked at them and said, the reason that I was here and the reason that I told them and the reason that they ignored me and the reason that they rejected me, is going, that all is going to judge them. If I wouldn't have done that, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had that judgment upon them. But because I gave that to them, they have no cloak to cover them. They have no excuse. You see, here's the thing, and I'm going to let you go. Here's the thing. When the Holy Ghost talks to you about something, take it seriously and deal with it. When the preacher preaches and you feel convicted, when the Holy Ghost convicts you about something, when the Holy Ghost convicts you about giving to God or being in church or praying or reading your Bible or fasting or no matter what, when the Holy Ghost talks to you about that, amen, there comes a responsibility with that. One time the Holy Ghost told me to do something, and I, I avoided it. And the Holy Ghost told me again, because I was in an area I did not want to draw attention. And the Holy Ghost told me again, said, if you don't do it, I won't talk to you. I did it. And there was a benefit to come out of it. But you've got to listen to God. And when God tells you, when the Word of God preaches to you, when you find something out, take care of it. When God wants to prune you, take care of it, praise God. Because Jesus told him, he said, you know, if I would have never talked to them, if I would have never gave that, then they would have never had that sin in their lives, praise God. But because I did, they have no excuse. I will say this, I feel within my heart that if somebody in a foreign field wanted to know about God, God would make a way for them to know. God would make a way if he has to take and translate them out in the middle of the desert like he did the prophet for the, for the Ethiopian riding by. Praise God. God will do it. Let's all stand. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, God, and praise you, Jesus, for your presence and your spirit. Touch, Lord, and to move upon this service tonight. Let us take this word to our hearts. God, speak to us and talk to us. And God, we're going to give you the praise and glory and honor. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.